starting at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. You may be seated. So for the last four Sundays, we have been looking intently at the dark side of the human condition. We began this journey looking deeply into our depravity in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and it continues all the way through Romans 3, verse 20. We have covered a lot of ground, so let me kind of review what Paul's real argument has been regarding the contrast between the righteousness of God that He gives and our righteousness. I've tried to connect each week, and I, I trust that Justin did last week, uh, Pastor Beach, to cover, to hit the overarching theme of this section, which is the righteousness of God revealed through the gospel. So after seeing the good news in uh, the first 17 verses, we have seen the following. We have seen the tragedy of unbelief and its consequences. We have seen the specific exchanges of the uh, exchange of God's glory for our own glory as it relates to sexuality, but especially when it comes to homosexuality. We have seen uh, and learned about the warnings to the religious people as Paul specifically has been addressing the Jews who have been reading his letter. And last week, Justin uh, explored the impartiality of God in terms of his judgment and how possessing, just merely possessing of the law or knowing what is right and what is wrong does not prevail over what is really right. 
So what, what Paul is doing here is he is putting all of our hearts underneath a microscope and explaining at the core of who you are, this is you. He's explaining this. Whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, whether he is or she is religious or irreligious, God's judgment is absolutely impartial. Impartial because at the core of our humanity, all have fallen and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Underlined all. So some people express their, their absolute depravity through utter, utter godlessness in their lives. Some do that, while others express it through the appearance of spirituality, which is where some of us sit today. We're expressing our, our depravity just through mere spiritual activity. And so it's important for us to kind of keep in mind this morning really, that this chapter 2 is specifically written to a spiritually-minded crowd. He's speaking to, uh, it specifically here, he is really addressing the Jewish culture that is in Rome. He is speaking to their hearts, those who have known the law. And Paul knew that there was a real imminent danger that they might be inclined, as are we, to think that they were less guilty because, Why? They had a special relationship with God. So last week, Paul went after the Jews' probably most prized possession. He went after the law. And, uh, but there are other expressions of this Jewish spirituality that also need to be addressed. Our text today walks us through the areas that might have given a Jewish person confidence. Confidence that he or she had arrived from a spiritual standpoint. None of us are in danger of that this morning, right? None of us feel like, man, I've arrived and I feel really good about where I'm at, so I'm going to kind of hunker down and just get comfortable. None of us struggle with that, right? Okay, rhetorical question. The answer is, yeah, we, we all struggle at some point with that very thing. Our text even addresses the single most important symbol of Jewish uniqueness and their relationship with God seen in the covenant. And he addresses the issue of circumcision. So Paul's aim here is to show us that, that spiritual status symbols do not equal true spirituality. Spiritual status symbols do not equal true spirituality. So if last week was about God's impartiality, this week it is about true spirituality. What is truly, does it mean for us to be spiritual? So Paul is going to be walking through four different things. He's first going to be looking at their confidence, and actually it's a misguided confidence. He's going to be looking at the consequences of that misguided uh, confidence. Then he's going to be addressing circumcision and just saying, but what is true circumcision? And then... Ultimately, we're going to land with Paul giving us some, some final conclusions of how do we apply this? How do we live into this? So let's see what his vision about real spirituality is before us. First, this misguided confidence. Paul begins his argument by really identifying ten things that relate, relate to what it really means to be a Jew. 
to be Jewish. Each of them is a result of their special relationship that they have with God. That God said, listen, you are mine, you are precious. So because of that, here are ten things, ten special things. So if you could think of these as special spiritual symbols, and that, that is why Paul starts off by even saying, if you call yourself a Jew, then these things are true. The list that follows in verses 17 through 22 is made up of things that are absolutely true. They're, it's true about their status. It's true about who they are. And Paul's not accusing them by uh, falsifying their special relationship, their special status as God's people. No, Israel was God's chosen people. And God's relationship was meant to say something to the entire world. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the, God is saying, you are my precious people. I've set my love on you. I've, I've made an oath with your fathers. You are special people. However, the problem was that this special status and this privilege became the very soil in which their self-righteousness grew. Out of that special status and the sense of feel of arriving, God has blessed them, chosen them. He, he, they are their treasured possession. Out of that, it was the very soil out of which their self-righteousness grew. Their, their confidence was misguided. And Paul lists a series of advantages and, and their calling as God's people as the very basis for a very serious charge against them. The first set of five things, I remember I said there's ten, the first set of five things relates to the blessings of, of the Jews as God's people. Everything listed that I'm going to list is absolutely true and each is unique and it is marks their, their special relationship with God. First, they, they rely on the, on the law. The Jewish people were given a special identity of, with God through the law. God gave the law to the children of Israel. This phrase doesn't mean that they, they didn't rely on God. Rather, it meant that the law was a, a means of special blessing. They understood their place and how this relationship is going to work out, work out. It was a divine revelation from God, and they were relying on it. There's, you see in here, there's the boast in God. They boast in God. And this would have been appropriate to boast in God's mercy and kindness, considering what God had taken them out of. We are boasting in God, and it is right for us to even boast in God, right? If you are going to boast, boast in God. Don't you dare boast about this church or your relationship or anything else. You say, look at what God has done. 
And that's what Israel was doing. And on top of that, they knew his will. The people of Israel had been blessed with knowing God's will as mediated through the commandments of God. They knew his will for his life. The law, the Ten Commandments, mercifully identified who God was and what God desired. The other nations of the world were not given this blessing. In fact, as we see later on, they're walking around in darkness. And they were also able to approve what is excellent. This follows the idea of being, having the knowledge of God's will, namely that God helped his people understand the best way to live. They were also instructed in the law. We have a summary a statement here that, that captures the previous uh, items. The Jewish people were blessed with a special knowledge of God's law, and they were being taught God's law. Again, let me emphasize that this is a great list and that there is nothing wrong with this list. In fact, this is something for us as well. You know, all these things that we should be relying on the law. We should boast in God. We should know his will. We should approve what is excellent. We should be instructed from the law. All these things are great things. And what is more, it is all true. So Paul had just listed things that every Jewish person would have said, Amen. Amen. But Paul doesn't stop there. He lists another five things to, that relate to Israel's understood mission to the world. In other words, God doesn't say, listen, I'm giving you special blessings and, and you just relish in them. You just enjoy them. It's all about you. No, in, in fact, he says, listen, I have blessed you to be a blessing. So there's five things. You, you are a guide to the blind. The Jewish people, through the Messiah, would, would be able to help those who are spiritually blind. They are, are to be a light to those who are in darkness. Israel was supposed to be a light that was uh, to the surrounding nations, and the law was supposed to be that light. It, does it sound like anything that we hear about in the New Testament? Kind of a, a city on a hill, you know. That's, that's what we are supposed to be like as well. On top of that, you are supposed to be an instructor of the foolish. Instruction was designed to be a way that Israel helped the other nations of the world, instructing them, telling them, sharing the good news. There's hope found in God. He has redeemed us. Ah, let me tell you how he can redeem you. On top of that, he is a teacher of children. So the word foolish and children are really kind of synonymous ideas. So this is a restatement of really kind of the previous idea. And having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth. It seems that we have another summary statement here that highlights the centrality of the law in the life and the very identity of the people of Israel. So, so what do we make of this list? The things represented here are an excellent summary of how spiritually-minded Jews would have seen themselves. And nothing listed is either inaccurate or even arrogant. God intended for the nations of the world to come to Jerusalem 
because those nations observed this unique relationship. There was something unique going on. And they would also be observing the blessings of God upon the people of Israel. However, verses 17 through 20 are not merely just a recitation of blessings of Israel and her God-given mission. It's a setup. Or as you might hear in Star Wars, it's a, it's a trap. It's a trap. The problem is that Israel enjoyed all these blessings and then allowed these things to become badges. Badges of self-righteousness. They, their, their confidence in their Jewish identity became misguided. And Paul is about to show them, here's the problem. So verse 21, Paul kind of does a shift, a tone uh, shift, and it's dramatic. And he does so in order to highlight that the Jews have failed to live up to their spiritual status and their spiritual calling. Even the Greek text, which which translated you then, shows that Paul is drawing a conclusion and here he is making a very important point. Paul is going to use four rhetorical questions to highlight the failure of their spirituality. So he's going to be pointing out the, the significant consequences that are coming about. The first question is really the most important question because it serves as a theme for the rest of the list. And the first question is, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Verse 21, the next one is, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor hate idols, do you rob temples and desecrate yourself? With with a failure to teach oneself at the very main thought, Paul draws upon the Ten Commandments to make his point, to punctuate what he's trying to say. He is using their spiritual status and their calling to, to, be, to teach the world as the basis of his charge of hypocrisy. You're hypocrites! And Paul is suggesting that they are guilty of the very thing that they are preaching against. Now remember why he is doing this. Paul is just not this malevolent teacher who is just out to knock people across the face. Paul is making the case that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty before God. Candidly, I'm going to be honest with you, candidly, it is a bajillion times harder harder to convince spiritually minded, obedience focused, moralistic people that they are guilty. I'm preaching to you right now, just so you know. I'm preaching to my own heart. It is, it is terribly difficult to, to convince spiritually minded, uh, obedience focused, moralistic kind of folks that we are really guilty. In fact, what do we do? I'm not that guilty. I've got my badge of self-righteousness to prove it. (laughs) Guilty. Right there. 
That's the problem. That, that's why Paul has spent so much time on the subject, and, and it is why he is rather shocking in what he has to say next. He kind of has to drive it home. He needs to get the jackhammer out. He needs to kind of put up the bill, big billboard of shining, blinking lights to get the, their attention. And Paul's words are meant to be sharp, and they're meant to be penetrating to get to the very heart of the issue. So you see in chapter 2, 23 and 24, Paul saying this, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is, and this would have made them shiver, blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. To boast in the law while still breaking the law it is not just only hypocritical, it is ultimately dishonoring God. That's what's going on here. Paul is dismantling their trust in their special status as God's people. And he is once again showing them that obedience, true heartfelt obedience, is what really matters here. True obedience that flows out of the heart, not out of your special status, Possessing the law or being God's special people does not set them into a different category with God. They are just as accountable to God as the Gentiles. So by boasting in something that they refuse to obey, that they refuse to keep, they end up being no different than the Gentiles who boast in their wisdom, but yet are fools. Everyone is guilty. Jew, Gentile, alike, everyone. So three weeks from now, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3. And, but I, I want you to hear this in light of what we see here in chapter 2 regarding the Jewish pride in obedience to the law, being instructors to the Gentiles, and their role to be a light to the world, to be drawn to God. So the, Romans 3, 10, and 12, 10 through 12, as it is written, no one is righteous. And in case you didn't get it, he goes on to say, no, not one. <laughs> do, you, do you kind of feel that? It's like somebody, he, Paul can say, oh, I know who's going to raise their hand and say, but what about me? He's going to, no, put your hand down. Not one. Not one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul is just demolishing this idea. Listen, get it under into your thick skull. No one. Not your status, not your knowledge, not your wisdom, not your attendance. Not, not, none of you are, 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 are righteous. Both Jews and Gentiles are, are found guilty before God. And in some respects, Jews are even probably more guilty. Why? Because of the gift that God had given them. The blessings he had bestowed upon them. Maybe that's why Paul spent so much time on this Jewish issue. They were given the law so that they could honor God and make his name known among all the Gentiles. However, their disobedience served to both dishonor God and also to hinder people's 
coming to God. The second half of verse 24 is just an absolutely stunning statement since blasphemy was the ultimate sin in the Jewish mind and heart. You blaspheme God, Jewish law says you're dead. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The very indictment is heavy right there. So Paul is quoting Isaiah 52, where Israel's very sin led them to being conquered by a foreign nation, which in turn led the nations to really deride God's blessings and make fun of it and poke fun of it. In the same way, the lack of obedience to God's law and the hypocrisy that went along with it led the Gentiles to declare, God is not real. Your God is dead. So don't miss the significance of the statement, friends. The very people who claim to be special to God actually empowered others by their actions to blaspheme God. Their special status not, not only did not spare them from judgment, it created a scenario that violated the very essence of their mission to the very world. Friends, this is why sin is so destructive. Not only does it destroy you, our, our unfaithfulness to follow what God says in His Word, not only does it destroy you and your, your systems that are surround you, it destroys your effectiveness, our calling to reach others because we become hypocritical. John Murray, in his uh, commentary, summarizes this issue well. He says, the tragic irony is apparent. The Jews who claim to be leaders of the nations for the worship of the true God had become instruments of provoking the nations to blasphemy. R. Kent Hughes, um, brilliant mind, college church in, in Wheaton, uh, in his commentary, gives really a, a poignant uh, illustration of this. And he, he says this, Stuart Briscoe tells about having to deal with a fellow employee who had embezzled a large sum of money from the bank that they had both worked at. The reason that the man embezzled was that he had two wives and families to support. When he was apprehended and fired, he stunned everyone by saying, quote, I'm very sorry for what I have done, and I need to know whether I should fulfill my preaching commitments on Sunday in our local church. Briscoe says that in the following weeks, he spent a great part of his time mending the damage done by that man's blatant inconsistency. To his chagrin, he found that his fellow workers not only despised the man, but were quick to dismiss the church he belonged to as a bunch of hypocrites. The church he believed as a lot of hogwash and the God that he claimed to be serving as non-existent. I think a lot of us here, even this morning, 
can probably provide our own poignant illustrations of damage that has been done to our own hearts or to our own churches, to, to the relationships because of the sin of other people, the experiences of other people. I, I remember my own experience at another local church where because of the moral failure, the sexual moral failure of the senior pastor, the church that was growing by the hundreds, was worshiping near a thousand people, his moral failure led to that church within six months to go down to 200 people. People just left. And many did not just leave to go to another church. They left disillusioned. Friends, our spiritual hypocrisy, and I'm owning it as well, our spiritual hypocrisy has significant consequences. Personally, in our families, in our workplaces, in our witness in this world. But the final aspect that Paul addresses here is about what, what is true circumcision. Paul's already talked about the law and it was, it was a very important thing to Jewish spirituality. There's part of me that uh, pities Abraham and his sons as they get the first command from God. This is what's going to happen. Grab some flint. Done with that conversation. But uh, circumcision was, was even more important since it seemed to mar be a mark of God's covenant with Abraham, the father of the Jewish children, the Jewish people. A male was not considered to be a part of a covenant community uh, and was not allowed in worship without the symbolic act of, that was needed to be completed. If he was not circumcised, he could not be among the congregation of God's people. He could not enter into temple worship. He could not be a part of any of it. Circumcision symbolized a person's connection to the promise of Abraham, and it was part of the spiritual continuity and the heritage of the Jewish people. Romans 4.11 says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. More than any other symbol, circumcision was a covenantal mark of the Jewish people and a distinguishing mark between the other nations. In the book of Ephesians, Paul even uses the terms circumcision and uncircumcision instead of Jew and Gentile. And the early church had to really wrestle with whether or not circumcision was a requirement for becoming a Christian. And praise be to God, it's not. The symbol was that important that they had to wrestle with it. So Romans uh, 2, 25 to 29, Paul connects circumcision and the keeping of the law. In fact, he, he links circumcision with obedience and true, true spirituality. In the same way that he talked about the law underneath the Old Testament law, he now talks about true circumcision versus external circumcision. He states the truth and it is very clear in 25, and he illustrates it with a question in verse 26. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. 
But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Could you imagine the Israelites going, hold on a second. How is this undone? This was a physical thing. How is my breaking the law going to make me uncircumcised? Paul goes on, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And the Israelites are going, hold on a second. So you're telling me an uncircumcised man who keeps the law is now circumcised? How is this all working out? So what emerges here is the real clear sense that obedience or true spirituality is what circumcision is intended for. The mere condition of being circumcised means nothing. It means nothing if there is no connection between the symbol and true spirituality. There needs to be a connection between the heart and spirituality. Those who break the law miss the very point of circumcision. And those who keep the law, despite their uncircumcision, are feeling, fulfilling God's intentions. So this idea of internal circumcision is nothing new. It is, it is an Old Testament concept that Israel somehow blocked out of their mind. The, the book of Deuteronomy called the people to circumcise their hearts. And the prophet Jeremiah talked about the people's unwillingness to listen because they have uncircumcised ears. Circumcision was never meant to be an external only issue. But that is what was happening with these Jews who were becoming judgmental of the Gentiles. So can you imagine the shock as the Jewish people heard verse 27? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, he will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. The reason Paul talks this way is to emphasize the point of the text. The point of the text is the outward actions alone avail absolutely nothing. Nothing. It would be shocking for the Jews to hear that an uncircumcised Gentile would be considered circumcised without actually being circumcised. And that, that the obedience of those Gentiles would become the means of their condemnation. The Jews' failure to understand true circumcision has led, according to Paul, to lead some people to blaspheme among the Gentiles and to the uncircumcised Gentiles being more religious than God's own chosen people. So in their judgment, the Jews missed. They just totally missed the ball. The Jews missed what the symbol of circumcision was really all about. So Paul concludes chapter 2 with three kind of summary statements regarding what is true obedience? What is true obedience? And, and these conclusions apply not only to the Jews, friends. They apply to us. Romans 2 is written to spiritually minded people. So we need to listen up. Here's the first thing that Paul nails. Verse 28. 
talks about uh, no more external focused living. Verse 28 is very important. It's a reminder that being a part of God's people is not merely about externally focused living. That's not just what it's about. The text tells us that there were Jews who were not really Jewish in this sense. While they had all the pedigree, they had this heritage, they had even the right religious activities, these things were no guarantee that they were on the right path spiritually. Even though they did all the right activities, they were missing the boat. Is this really a Jewish problem? I think it's a human problem. And it tends, it tends to reflect what human beings do with spirituality, right? We have this tendency to reduce spirituality to a series of things that we do, right? Attendance, activity, 